Okay, let's turn to the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and we're going to be looking at chapter 7. We're not going to get very far into this chapter today, and I've purposely done that. And uh, But read with me, please. Follow with me, I should say. Um, in chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 3 and 4. And five. Second Corinthians chapter seven, and we'll pick up from where we left off at last week. And here Paul says in this letter to them, chapter verse three, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you, great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Praise us. The Lord will add a blessing uh, to his word this morning. Before I begin my message, I want to refresh your memory on the timing of this mainly biographical letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. The second letter was sent to the Corinthians prior him visiting them a third time. We have that in chapter 12, verse 14, and chapter 13, verse 1. It was the third time that he was visiting. So just prior his third visit... He kind of sent, well he does, he sends the second letter. This letter was in response to some good news that Titus gave Paul of the repentance of this Corinthian church and their return to the Lord as is recorded in this very chapter, chapter 7. Okay. So what Paul does here is he in this letter as he reveals his his most intimate emotions and struggles that he's experienced in his relationship with these believers in Corinth up to this present point. That's what this letter is about. But we need to kind of back up a little bit, and I gave you this earlier on in the piece, but I think it's important at this stage of his letter to understand it again. We need to recap, and um, because. We saw when we started the Second Corinthians that this is not really the second letter, but really his fourth. And uh, two of those letters are not part of the New Testament canon. They're not recognised. They're not part of the inspired Word of God. But they were written because after planting this church and spending eighteen months ministering and teaching them and grounding them in the word of God, which is recorded in Acts chapter 18, by the way. After he does that, Paul goes back to Ephesus, a city across the sea or right up around the Gulf and back down into Asia Minor or what we would call today modern Turkey. He goes back to Ephesus. But soon after he went back, Paul heard that things were not very good in Corinth, in the church. So he wrote a letter. And that's the letter that's been lost. And he addresses that specific issue. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, the issue that he addressed. 
And so while still serving in Ephesus, Paul heard, after he wrote that letter, he heard of further concerns that upset him that were going down in Corinth. And then Paul wrote 1 Corinthians as we have it in our canon of scripture. But all was not resolved, even by this first letter that he wrote, which was really the second. Because what happened here, a more dangerous threat arose in the church, and that is false teachers, those who were teaching false doctrine and uh, false ways of salvation and, and, and of religion, etc. They crept into the church and were influencing the church, and Paul was really concerned. And because of this, he saw the need not to write, but to visit the church owing to this persuasive influence that the false teachers were having amongst the believers there. However, this visit, referred to by Paul in chapter 2, verse 1, as a painful visit, did not go well. Paul was, on this occasion, evidently publicly insulted by at least one person, and the people there as a church never rallied round behind Paul. They didn't show him any loyalty and uh, even sort of didn't even take into account the 18 minutes, 18 months that he had ministered amongst them and poured his heart and soul and life into them. They counted it for nothing. And so Paul, after that painful visit, left and returned to Ephesus. And Paul was at a very low ebb when he wrote a third letter. third letter was also one that was lost, is lost. And this letter is known as the severe letter. We read of the severe letter in chapter 2, verse 4, which Paul sent via Titus, his fellow worker in the gospel. He couldn't put it in the post. Probably got to cost too much, more than a dollar. And so Paul sent it via Titus, his fellow worker. And so Titus, off he goes to Corinth and takes the severe letter. And because in this letter it was severe because what Paul did was he strongly and rightly admonished these believers and Paul makes actual reference of the contents of this letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 4 to 11. And so he sends Titus off with a severe letter and he says what he needs to say and inspired by God writes what he needs to write. And then the waiting begins for Paul. How will they receive this? What will those Corinthian believers, how will they respond? Come on, Titus, why are you taking so long to bring me back the news? He was restless about knowing the outcome, so restless that he, he left Troas because that was the original meeting place. Titus, when you come back with the news, however they respond, you meet me in Troas. And so Paul goes up to Troas, which is right on the coast, before he either crosses the sea or goes right around. But Paul was so anxious that he jumps the gun and he goes over to Macedonia to hurry up the process of meeting Titus with this news, whatever it may be. That was part of Paul and the Corinthian story, can we call it, that we left in chapter 2 of this this letter, 2 and verse 13. That's how we left it. Chapter 2, verse 13, Paul was waiting, waiting and waiting. Since then, 
Between chapter 2 and verse 13 and right up until now, we have been reading and looking into, as I've referred to before, as this massive digression or a massive section that is in parenthesis. From, two chapter, from chapter 2, verse 14, and it concludes here in verse 5 of chapter 7. Now, some people don't like digressions, but this one we have to like because it's the inspired word of God, right? And matter of fact, it's the most powerful and theological emphasis of this whole letter that Paul wrote. It rose to a pinnacle, as we have seen in chapter 5, where Paul highlights the need for sinners to be what? Reconciled to God. And how the believer is made a new creature in Christ and he's justified by Christ and by Christ alone. And it is Christ alone who bore the penalty that believers should have borne. He bore it on our behalf. And the scriptures record here how Christ became sin for us. These are wonderful truths. Wonderful truths that are the very heartbeat of the gospel. That's why we love this digression, right? And many of the Corinthians by faith had received these wonderful truths, just like many of you here today in this building. Um, we hold to them and we love them because they are the keys of eternal life. They are the only way of salvation. And so we love them. But the main thread, the main thread, can we say, through this whole letter, apart from these succinct truths of the gospel, is tracking the relationship between Paul and the responses of these wayward believers in Corinth. You got that? It's tracking the relationship between Paul and these believers in Corinth. And so though the relationship taxed Paul with mental grief and heartache, it really did. It really taxed them. You know what? Paul still loved them and longed for their fellowship. As we mentioned last week, he loved them as a father does his children. And here in chapter 7, the digression or, or the section in parenthesis ends. It's here we pick up with Paul. Where is he? He's in Macedonia. He's looking and waiting for Titus, hoping and hoping and hoping for good news about the Corinthians. That's where we come to. You see, folks, let me digress a little bit here, if I may. The gospel is not just about an escape hatch from hell. You see, the gospel, it does, it saves us and delivers us from that rightful judgment that we all deserve. It sure does. But what the gospel does when we trust in Jesus Christ, it also gives believers a new life in Christ. That's why we're new creatures. We're new people in Christ. We've been reborn. Some of us have been looking and studying into. We're born again. We receive a new nature. We have new dispositions. We have new desires. We have new purposes. Why? We even have a whole new worldview when a person becomes a Christian. Amen? And so because we are brand new, We are to live a different life. We live Christ out. We have Christ within us and so we live him out. And we have a special love for others. If you want to know if you're saved or not, go to First John and one of the hallmarks of, of being a Christian is that you will have a love for others. Jesus even says that if you love me, you will obey my commandments and if you have love, and you also love one another. 
And so the Christians, the Corinthians I should say, like ourselves sometimes, we have difficulty in this area. We have difficulties in understanding that we have indwelt by the Spirit of God, we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Saviour. Now, I need to live that out. It's my, not only my responsibility, it should be a longing to live out that Christian life. And it should be seen in evidence. And the Corinthians are having trouble in this, like we do sometimes. You see, although the God's anointed apostle... Uh, bought them the gospel and spent 18 months, as we have said, serving and ministering among them. And, and now false teachers had come in amongst them and influencing them to go against the truth that they had heard from the Apostle Paul, uh, that he had preached to them. And they, they persuaded them by their influences to, to yield to their wayward affections rather than to yield to the truth of God's word by the Apostle Paul. And we saw that last week. Their affections held sway and it caused all sorts of disasters in their, normal, in their, in their, in their life. It caused a, a division. They were trying to have a foot in both worlds, as it were. And as a result, even personally toward the Apostle Paul, they ended up maligning him and accusing him and, and of being what he was not. They, they even despised his personal oratory skill. They inferred that he was in the ministry for monetary gain. They scorned his apostleship. They abused their own spiritual giftedness that God gave them to build up and edify the church. They abused that. They abused it for personal gain. And they called to question, if you please, the apostles' sincere love for them. These people were hard work, as we saw last week. Hard work. At this stage, Paul's heart was broken. It really was. His heart was broken. And we need to know that it wasn't what the world did to him, and the world did heaps to him. We know that. It was what the church did to him. Suffering physical persecution from the unsaved was one thing, which he did. We he know that he was he was beaten, he was stoned, he was ridiculed, he was he he had everything heaped upon him. That was one thing. But the ongoing pressure and concern for all the churches that we have recorded in eleven twenty eight of this letter was what really took a major toll on the apostle Paul. This man was bearing a huge load, folks. He was weighed down. And here his concern for the Corinthian church is very specific. For here we see that so he was, he was so weighed down that it's recorded that he was afflicted, he was depressed, and he was fearful. It doesn't sound like words that we would attach to the Apostle Paul, does it? Wow, he's a super saint. He wouldn't be touched with those things. Oh, yes, he was. Yes, he was. Verse 5 tells us he was afflicted on every side. Conflicts without and fears within. Christians can get like that, you know, folks. Depression and affliction and turmoil of mind and body and soul, they are very real. Very real. Go back to the... By biblical record, Elijah, why he was there. He knew what it was about. He was on the mountaintop and the next minute he plunged and he escaped and tried to flee and 
thought he was the only one left, no one else, until God came and encouraged him that he had a remnant. Jonah was the same. Job was the same. They knew what this was like. In the modern days, history tells us of great men of God like Martin Luther, William Cowper, a great hymn writer, a great man of God, used of God. He was a personal friend of Isaac Newton, C.H. Spurgeon and many others. They all felt this affliction without and conflicts and fears and depression and they were often fearful. One of these men recorded that these low times were like the fog of hell. He cited that while still serving the Lord in the ministry. As a matter of fact, so severe was Martin Luther's depression on one occasion that his wife thought it would be appropriate, it must be appropriate, something had happened, that she dressed in black mourning clothes. Luther, upon seeing her first thing in the morning, naturally inquired, who has died, dear? Her terse reply was, gazing from a disposition, I thought it must have been God. And so here we see the, the great apostle. The great apostle confronted with similar afflictions of the soul as he grapples with the tardiness of these difficult believers. His deep concern at this time was what kind of response will the Corinthian have to this necessary and severe letter sent to Titus? What will it do? Will they go on in their selfish ways? What will the outcome be? Will they continue to receive the grace of God in vain, which he'd referred to in, our last, in the last chapter? Will they continue to spurn me, their father in the faith? Or, or will they, or will they, this is what he's hanging out for, but not knowing whether it happened or not, or will they repent and return to the truth of the gospel? And so there he was, Macedonia, waiting for Titus, afflicted, depressed. The Apostle Paul was surely at an all-time low, depressed, afflicted and fearful, and as I said before, we can all get like this at times, folks. It's horrible and it's not a good place to be. Some of you might be more aware of that than others. But it's not a good place to be. But as we look at this chapter, as we look at this chapter, we see that it's not about depression or affliction. Do you know that? It's there. True, it's there. This chapter is all about joy and comfort and restored relationships. Right through it. The word comfort, comfort, comfort is all the way through. That's what this chapter is about. And that is how we all want to be, no matter what the storm, right? We want to be comforted and, and have, a, a, have joy. Well, we're going to dig in a little and learn from Paul's experience here how restored relationships can bring about joy and comfort from God because they really can. The section actually has so convicted and convinced me, I want, I want it to grip your souls this morning like it has mine. So bear with me as we take time on the first point of this message because this is as far as we're going to go this morning. 
and we'll deal with the rest later, God willing. First point is comfort from God through the confidence in his people. You know, one of the most difficult but necessary things for genuine love to be displayed is to give and receive instruction and admonition when it is needed. You ever noted that? When people admonish us, I noticed Jordan prayed that as we're admonished and encouraged. But when we're told that, hey, I don't think you're getting in the right direction or your behavior is out of kilt or, or out of sync with, with what God wants, you know, that's really hard to take. And equally, it's hard to give. What tends to happen is, in order not to offend a person or to protect our own comfort zone, we remain quiet and let what is wrong have its way, be it in our own lives or in the lives of someone else. We kind of dig our heads in the sand, as it were. I'm being open and honest, and I'm speaking from myself here, and so I imagine you're similar to me. But let's back up a little bit and think about the ramifications of such an attitude or such action. You see, if a keep your nose out of it or I am not my brother's keeper attitude was practiced in your family setting, let your sanctified imaginations have a little riot here. How would your kids grow up if you never in genuine love confronted them about the wrongs and the bad attitudes they practiced? We all know the answer to that, right? Disaster. Your home would be a terrible place to live in. It may take a little while, but it would be. Your kids would run amok. And then you'd go and say, where did I go wrong? Even though you probably know where you went wrong. You see, folks, the point here that Paul is making is and leading us by example is that, that he valued and practiced the input of admonishing and counselling those whom he loved. You got that? That's what he's saying to us here. That's what, he, that's what he's teaching to us here. He, he was like a father to these believers. That's what he was. He valued the truth that Solomon cited many, many years before. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You got that? Proverbs 27, verse 6. Here was Paul hurting in heart and soul, yet he continued to love these difficult and wayward saints. And even reminds us, he reminds them that his words via letter, and when he went to visit them, his words were not to condemn them. He reminds them of that. This word condemn means my admonishment and counsel were not the final straw. They're not a final judgment that demands and means Final condemnation. That's what he's meaning here. And his words were not, listen to me because this is the last time I'm ever going to speak to you. It wasn't like that at all. But never was Paul's attitude toward these reluctant saints. He affirmed this by his words in verse 3. I have said before that you were in our hearts to die together and to live together. You remember? We mentioned that last week. And here we have it in verse 3. To die together and to live together. He, they were so much in his heart that he could say that. This statement is an expression of, of loyal love, no matter what. A little bit like a marriage vow that we also mentioned last week, till death to us part. That's what the statement was primarily emphasizing. In other words, Paul was emphasizing his heart's love for them by saying, I will stand with you 
no matter what, forever. So much was his love for them. But more powerful than that, Paul doesn't really just say that. He says something more powerful. And because Paul, in these few words, goes beyond that. It goes beyond what we might say at the altar when we get married, that I will love you forever, or um, et cetera, et cetera, until death do us part. He, goes, he says something more than that. Just look what he says there. Normally one would say it like this. This is how normally one would say it. You are in our hearts to live together and to die together. You know, we kind of leave the death to the end. Live and then die. Because death is what is the common leveler of all mankind. And, and when we think of death, that's where earthly relationships cease, alphanito, finish, right? So that's how we would put it. We're to live together and to die together. But you notice that Paul reverses the order in the text. This is how Paul says it. Paul says it like this. You are in our hearts to die together and live together. You notice that? You see, what this means is that nothing that you have done in life and even death itself will end his heart's love for them. That's what he means by that. You see, the order of the words here make it clear that his love for them will not end at death. No way. He loves them eternally. So you have sanction to tell your spouse or whoever to tell brothers and sisters that you do love them eternally. That's what Paul says here. That's what Paul does. His love for them was so deep and so wide and so high, it transcends death and goes beyond the grave on into eternal glory of the promised heaven to die and live together. This is what he's saying here. This is what is the depth of his heart's love towards his brothers and sisters, even though they had done what they and were doing what they had done to him. That's loyal love with a tremendous eternal hope attached to it, right? Dear people, to be loved and to love like that is a love that makes any worldly, restricted, conditional, selfish love look puny at its best, doesn't it? Paul was merely, by the way, following the Lord's example here. The Lord's love was anchored was anchored in us. That's what the Lord's love was. The Lord's love for us was anchored in this. The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and the seat of the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, amidst the storm, the affliction, the tears, the agony of soul, the Lord endured, he was captivated by the comfort and joy of the glory awaiting him. That's what that verse is telling us. Oh yes, primarily in obedience to the Father, he came to die. But for the joy that awaited him, he despised the shame. That's what Paul was doing. They rubbished him, they maligned him, they did everything else. But oh, how he loved them. Eternally. You see folks, genuine Christ-like love sees beyond the circumstances that bring grief and affliction. And looks to eternal glory. The joy set before him. You see, Paul was loving on these people, these difficult people, just like Jesus loves. That's what he was doing. And to love like that, even for people that hurt us and bring us, what it does, it brings us, it 
it can do and it will do bring tremendous peace and comfort to the point where you overflow with joy amidst the storms of life. Like it did for Paul. You see that in verse 4. Amidst the storms. Problem is our love for one another, especially for those who hurt us, can be short-sighted in a worldly kind of love. It's constrained, it's strangled. We tend to cut people out of our lives or we just don't bother with them or we just don't listen to them. After all, it's just too invasive, it's too uncomfortable. Let them go and do their own thing. Those kind of remarks or attitude can be a response we give to difficult people, especially other believers. Dear people, no brother or no sister in the Lord should ever be cast away and considered too hard No one. No one should be cast away and have us saying, oh, well, it's all their own fault anyway. Let them stew in their own juice. Uh, All that is just selfish, unchristlike thinking. It's short-sighted, ungodly, selfish thinking. You know, that's worse than parents cutting off and disowning their own child because of maybe a wayward lifestyle. We would never do that, right? People of the world don't even do that. If one of our children kind of went in his own way, which was against the things of God, and we would never cut him off, would we? No. Yes, they need discipline. They need admonishing. They need training. They need counsel. As the scripture says, in season, out of season. What that means is whether they want it or whether they don't, when they want it and when they don't. And even... Even if, even if they reject us, our own children, we still love them. They're still our children. You know what? And like the father to the prodigal son, we would welcome the repentant sinner home, wouldn't we, when they come. But look what Paul does. Look what the Apostle Paul does here. He goes further than forgiving them. He goes further than that. Amidst all the afflictions of heart and soul, these recalcitrant believers have caused Paul. Paul says something here that's absolutely astounding. Amidst all this, he says something astounding. Though this church had caused them more heartache and grief than any other single church in the New Testament, looks what he says. He says, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. You see that in verse 4. How could this be? Was Paul for real on this or was he not? We might think that the way that these people performed, how could the Apostle Paul be so naive? Surely they deserve some kind of aloofness, at least a cold shoulder kind of thing. But certainly not open trust and speaking positively and freely about them like the Apostle Paul indicates here in the text. Surely. You see, folks, what we need to understand is even though their behaviour was not what it should have been toward Paul or toward everything and toward life, Paul was looking beyond the external. You see that? He was looking beyond the external. Paul's great confidence was in them. You see that? It was in them. Not in their behaviour. Not in their conduct. Yeah, he knew what they'd been up to. He knew what they were doing. And he felt the brunt of that. And it hurt him immensely. His confidence was in you. 
was great. It says it was great because of the agenda. This is where it was before. Because it was the, it was in, it was great in them because Paul could see the genuine redeeming saving work of Jesus Christ in them. That's what he looked at. You see, his confidence and unrestricted speech about them was based on the work of God in them, on the fact of them knowing God. And he knew God would complete the work that he had begun in them. First of Philippians 1 verse 6. God also knew that God had done a work in him and he would complete it. And he could see these difficult believers, true saints of God. That's what true love does, right? Love believes all things and hopes all things, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. Christ-like love always gravitates, listen to this, it always gravitates to see the best in people, never the worst. Do you get that? Oh, wow. That hits home, doesn't it? Hit home for me. By the way, genuine Christ-like love is not naive. Believing the best about a fellow brother or sister is not immature, even if it ends up hurting you, even if it ends up hurting you. Paul loved all these believers, including those who had proved to be a bunch of divisive, difficult, abusive malcontents. He loved them. Yes, he did. He still loved them. He thought the best of them right at this stage before he had, had heard any news of how they were going to respond to the severe letter that he had sent to the cipher. This is, this is his intimate being being exposed here towards these believers. He loved them and he thought the best of them. Wow. Let me pause here because I believe we have a problem in this area. I do anyway. I tend to be suspicious and guarded rather than positively seeing the best of believers, especially when their behaviour raised some questions. But not Paul. He looked past people. He looked deeper than the surface stuff of other believers' lives, even though that surface stuff gave him a real whipping. He looked at Christ in them. And he so valued the work of Christ in them, despite their unfaithfulness and prideful actions that, that really gutted him, he spoke freely and boastfully of them as his fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this truth, this truth, this sure, confident hope in God for them, what did it do? What did it do? Did it keep him in a state of depression and affliction? And fear? No. With this perspective, with this big, eternal, Christ-centered view of the Lord's people, despite their past, despite their failures, it filled him with what? It filled him with comfort to the point that he was overflowing with joy. You know that? It wasn't his positive thinking that did the trick. It wasn't that. It was about a mind and heart set on the word, work of God, and his grace in the lives of these people. You see, when Paul evaluated these people and any believer, you know who he began with? Peter mentioned it the other week. He began with God. And that's a good place to start when we're evaluating things. Paul began with God, even when looking at other believers who weren't where they should be spiritually in their life of walk with Christ. 
He began with God and he saw God's grace in the lives of these non-compliant believers. And as a result, rather than, than laboring over his personal hurts and grief, you know what happened? His heart sang, folks. His heart sang. Depression and affliction were demoted. It did not eradicate the times of affliction and depression, no. Because it says here in the text, in all our affliction. In other words, amidst our affliction, amidst the difficulty times, amidst those times where it's like a fog of hell in our lives. But amidst it all, the filling and comfort and overflowing with joy, that became paramount. That's what happened. Is that how you think of other believers? That cause you grief? Or maybe sometimes you wish I'd rather not be with? Even to the point of saying, well, we haven't got too much in common, but really only look at the surface stuff. Do you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ through the lenses of God's redeeming grace in their lives? Do you? Do I? We should do. That's why we should never speak ill or wrongly of other believers. Even if they annoy you and are different and even may have hurt you and offended you or spoke ill of you or simply maybe paid you no interest at all. Do you see them first as objects of God's redeeming love and grace? We should do. So much so that despite anything, your heart sings and can sing with an overflowing joy and be filled with comfort. That's the response that we can have in situations like that. Or do we too easily allow the circumstances of life? As I said before, these can be horrible at sometimes and these can be heavy. Or do we too easily allow those circumstances of life crowd out the glorious and eternal work of God in his beloved children? That's why, that's why believers need to be together as much as we can. We shouldn't just look upon church as a once a week thing. If we, we need to be together. When there's ever meetings convened together, you go all out to be together because why we love them and we love the Lord and we love our people and we can be encouraged, we can be filled with comfort and joy as we see, as we know and that they are objects of God's redeeming grace. When a mother and a father announced to the church, like was this morning and in days gone by, that a child is to be born to them, what is our response? Not only when they announce, but when the child comes, when the child grows. We are filled with a sense of, of gladness, right? I even heard claps and cheers go up this morning. We express our sheer joy at this God-given biological reality to make it a little bit more clinical sounding, even though it's a miracle. How much more, folks, how much more should we be filled with comfort and overflow with joy knowing that our brothers and sisters are supernaturally born again? by the Spirit of God, and that through faith they have become the objects of God's eternal redeeming grace. How much more joyful should we be? How should that much more should that be paramount in our lives? Not only when they came to faith, a lot of us, we don't know when, I don't know exactly when and what date. Once I was blind, but now I can see. Do you rejoice in that? 
Do I rejoice in the fact that God saved you when he did and, and he's carrying on saving you and I'm going to be eternally with you and so therefore, wow, you're an object of God's redeeming grace and that fills me with comfort and joy. And so I can experience and know that love and joy right now. Is that how we are? It should be. That's what a community of faith is all about. And there's none of that joy going on but in and around us and through us and over us and under us. There's something drastically missing. And I'll tell you what it is. We're not beginning with God. We're beginning with ourselves at the best and maybe the circumstances of life. And they let that, we let that crowd that out. We're called in Hebrews 10.24 to let us consider how to stimulate one another to love. To love like God loves. That's how we want to love, by the way, you know. I don't want to have a human love. I want to know what it is to love like God loves. Not that we'll ever love exactly like he loves because he's perfect and I'm not perfect. But as we think of God, he, he loves us despite our failings and our faithfulness and grief that we cause him. He loves us. And that's how we to love one another. He loves and rejoices of us. Do you know that psalmist said that, that God even takes pleasure in us? Psalm 149. He takes pleasure in us. Do you take pleasure in one another and are filled with comfort and joy knowing that your fellow brother and sister is an object of God's grace and so that you can eternally love them? May we be toward one another amidst all the afflictions. May we find comfort and be those who overflow with joy as we consider our brothers and sisters as to who they are in God's sight. Next week, we'll look at the week after, perhaps God willing, we'll look at these other two points and trusting God will um, help us get through this passage. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we are just moved as we have been challenged this morning in me during the week this text of what our love to one another should be and Father we confess that it is sorely lacking we confess that we so often start with the circumstances and allow that to cloud and shadow how we treat our brothers and sisters how we treat the assembly of the Lord's people well Father give us a greater heart of love for one another and may this be a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power in us all as individuals and us, in us all as a collective group of believers. Fill us with your love, your joy, your comfort as we mix and mingle and rejoice in one another. Father, take us from this place and watch over us for the remainder of the week. Bless our work. Bless our families. Bless our, the reading of your word as we take it up during the week. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.